Hi, I'm Susan Thorson. And I'm Tim Cox, and we're from Redeemer City to City. You're listening to Church and Outbreak. Today, we're talking to John Smed, the founding director of Prayer Current. We're talking to him about prayer, which is a really timely topic today. So, John, could you describe to me what was the normal for Prayer Current, the normal state of affairs, and then how has the pandemic changed that for you? Well, I like to think that how we normally talk about prayer and how we talk about prayer right now is not really any different. There's two things that characterize great change and even revival. And the first is that the pace of things speeds up. Someone said it's like time-lapse photography. What normally takes a few hours, you can capture in a few seconds. And I would say that's what happens in times of great change. What normally takes many years happens in a few years. And uh, the second aspect is that what, uh, what should be effective in normal times becomes greatly effective in times of severe trial, stress, anxiety, apocalyptic times, if you want to put it that way. So that our, we were gearing up for more of an online presence beginning about 18 months ago. We realized we had to do that as our ministry was expanding. We were um, excited to be working with door openers in different countries around the world. We were, work, we were working in India and China and Cuba, particularly those three countries. and so. Really, we haven't changed anything except for the pace has quickened and the awareness has quickened and the need for what we do has quickened. I put it this way. Before the uh, COVID-19, I was the guy who walked around with the apocalyptic sandwich board, uh, drawing blank stares and raised eyebrows. Now I've been invited to every soiree in town to be a part of what's happening. So times have changed. And uh, one thing we've seen is a tremendous exponential spike in prayer. And right now, a great portion of the world is praying, particularly Christians are praying. But prayers uh, uh, of commiseration, prayers of, of just comforting one another, prayers of just asking God to alleviate the problem are not the kind of prayers that will be sowing seed for future awakening and revival. There's a certain kind of, not just any prayer will do, but a certain kind of prayer, namely prayer that's, that's uh, clearly connected to Christ as the mediator of all prayer, uh, inspired and filled with the Holy Spirit as the um, one who teaches us how to pray and what to pray. Prayer that's biblically rich, fed on the Psalms, fed on the very prayers of the Bible. There's no greater way to learn prayer than to pray the prayers of the Bible memorize Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, those monster prayers of Paul. Uh, they're profoundly spiritual prayers. They're, they're the kind of prayers that fueled his movement and the kind of prayers that will fuel any gospel movement. So learning to pray biblically, learning to pray in the spirit. What does it mean to pray in the spirit? Trying to understand that. Learning especially, this is for us number one, pray in concert and united with other believers. So that's what we've been doing for you know, 2000, that's what we continue to do. And we just see this as being another phase for us, a glorious phase of acceleration. I'm not happy, of course. I have two friends who almost died. Uh, we're living in isolation. I can't see my family and my kids, neither can you. 
uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult time in, in many regards. The economy's crippled. That means something for everybody. These are not insignificant factors. We care. We pray. We, we bring bread to uh, baking to our neighbors. We try to help babysit the single parents' kids when they, so they can do something. We, there's things we're doing and have to do. These are the deeds of love and mercy. That, that Without that, the gospel's a clanging symbol. And prayer means nothing apart from that. If prayer isn't enacted in our lives, it doesn't mean anything. So gospel prayer has gospel action as well as gospel proclamation. So that's a long answer to a short question, but basically we're doing what we've always done and uh, we are only doing it at an accelerated pace and we believe God has raised up our, our us and probably many, many other ministries just for this time. What's the message on your apocalyptic sandwich board? Okay, the message on my apocalyptic sandwich board hasn't changed. Uh, I just don't need a sandwich board anymore. And that was basically that the Christian vision is a combination of two things, always has been, always will be. The first is a vision of Christ ascended in power, authority, and glory. The one presently now ruling and conquering the nation, Psalm 2. Basically that the church has this view of an ascended Christ and it's never more powerful and more revived than when it just sees Jesus. Fix your gaze on Jesus. So by definition, faith sees things that can't be seen. But that's only one dimension of vision. The second dimension is that Christ is returning soon. You look at the book of Revelation, which is, by the way, literally the book of the apocalypse, the unveiling, the revelation. It's, let's, let's use its original word by saying it's apocalyptic. And it's there for a reason. It's there to keep our vision on an ascended Christ and on a coming Christ. We're to be ready now. Paul says, you're not like those who are in the dark to be surprised by these things. And that's because we've always been looking at the world, but gazing at Christ, one eye gazing at the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God and throned in power. And another eye looking at the horizon saying, I hear thunder. I see lightning. It's getting closer. Count the seconds between. It's getting closer. And I see Jesus coming closer. Jesus himself said, when you begin to see these things taking place, lift your eyes. Take a look. Be prepared. Some people think, oh, don't bring on this second coming stuff. This is inappropriate. This is exploiting people's fear. I said, oh, contraire. That's the, always the job of the church. God is taming the world right now. It's a teachable moment. And this is the great opportunity for us to tell people good news. Good news for you. Jesus is on the throne. By faith, you can see him too. I want to even tell you greater news. He's coming soon. He's coming in terrible thunder and storm, but he's also coming to save. He's coming to save. We talk about gospel preaching. It's not just Jesus died on the cross. And gospel prayer is not just filled with lament and 40 days of Lent. Gospel prayer is filled with this heightened joy, expectation, anticipation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And then the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Come, drink the waters of life without cost. You can't preach that message effectively without this clear vision that Christ is enthroned and Christ is coming back. And that should be in our heart and mind every day. This is just an opportunity for us to see it a little more clearly. And you know what? When believers pray in that way, and when we all share that common vision, 
You know what that is? That's called a revival. That is what revival is. It's the multiplication of prayer. We, we often say we don't pray for revival. Prayer is revival, but not just any kind of prayer. It's prayer that is rich with the gospel. The fact that he came and died for us. The fact that he's ascended and risen right now. The fact that he's coming again. Now that's the gospel that saves. We can't just preach part of it. I'm curious about the, the message, Jesus is on the throne. If you're interacting with an unbeliever, that can come across as insensitive if they've just lost somebody or they're wondering where their next meal is going to come from. Can you speak to that at all? We, we are dealing with that with people around us. We mourn with those who mourn. But, you know, I preached a sermon on the death of Christ in light of the tough the, the difficulties of today. And then I said, but let's look past the death. There's hope at the end of the story. And so you don't preach necessarily, although there's a time for it and a place for it. Jesus is coming to judge and to save. And the gospel always has both aspects. I talked to a young man recently and I said, I was talking about COVID-19 and, and, and he was an environmental, uh, wildlife environmentalist, 15 years professor. And he says, well, why are you know basically why are you a christian i said well let me ask you a question why is jesus on the cross and he looked at me and he said i'm not sure i bet you're going to tell me but i imagine it's kind of strange to me that god would kill his son of course that's become the go-to disagreement with christianity now you know god's killed his son and i said well what does it tell about the human race that the most lovely, kind, merciful, generous, truthful person that ever existed is up there on a cross? That we put him there. What is it about us? And then I would say, now, what is it about God that permits that to his enemies? And then I went and unpacked that. And that's, what, that's basically where we end up talking about and saying, this is good news for you. Even though you, death is not something we don't deserve. That's the biblical message. Is it's a stay of execution for each one of us until we meet Christ. And I, and 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 you know, Spurgeon said, when you preach the gospel, always go cross country to Christ. Take it to Jesus, because He will speak that comfort. And you look at Jesus has you know the thunders in the distance, the lightning, the storm is coming, but also. When, you, when someone gets this awareness that Jesus is coming, then they turn to the unbeliever and said, the lost, harassed, helpless person and say, you know what? Come. Are you thirsty? Come. There's waters of life for you. Come. No, you have to leave this world sooner or later. You might as well leave it now. Now's a good time to make your break before it's too late. And the problem, I believe, why we're seeing so few people come to Jesus Christ is we're not bringing people to the cross. And we're not bringing into the message of judgment and redemption. Faithful presence isn't going to save anybody. Salt, yes. Light, yes. Leaven, yes. But proclamation, words of life and hope. Peter says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. You know, they say you can't lead a horse to water, but you can make him thirsty by putting salt in his oats. So all of our interactions, let your speech be salty so they get thirsty so you can tell them where to come.
the gospel is not completed. It's not even, it's not even um, effectively lived until we get to the point of sharing something about what we believe. I believe today there's a, a lemming-like rush away from personal evangelism and proclamation. That's why we're not seeing anything happen. A collective shame and fear, shame of what owning Jesus and fear of what people will think. Hopefully COVID-19 wakes us up to what our true profession is as leaders. It's to bring people up front, close and center to the real Jesus, who as he, what he did for them and who he is now. He said, our ministry of prayer is because we believe prayer fuels that kind of courage. Prayer in the spirit, through the mediation of Christ, for what he requires in his kingdom purposes is the prayer that will shake the world, especially as we join together and pray. Collective, corporate, united prayer. They lifted their voices together in one accord is what we read. That's what we need to do. This is time to get to, to if what should you do now? Well, it's springtime where I live and the flowers are just about ready to peep out. And uh, uh, we just now are, as the snows recede, we're planting seeds and bulbs. Why? Because when the snows do recede, we want something to harvest. So do, you want, do we want to harvest after COVID-19? It's time to sow seeds of prayer and bulbs of prayer gathering. If we do, we will see a harvest. If we do not, it'll, when COVID-19 ends, we'll be gone. Because we've been spending all our time praying for care workers. Now, I, I pray for care workers, but that's, that's, that's not the call of a church to pray for the maintenance of the existing order and that we can get back to the way things were. God forbid we should get back to the, things, the way things were. What we need and what we hope this time brings is a true awakening to who Christ is and what he's done. And a true awakening to what our calling is as men and women, ministers of the gospel, to bring an unashamed, loving, powerful presentation so that people will say, this Christ whom you have pierced, and they will mourn for him as an only son, and a fountain will be open for cleansing and great salvation will be happening. And out of that river of a torrent of tears that says that the idols will be swept away and the false prophets will be removed. That's, that's where true prayer and true gospel proclamation ends up is, an, is cultural civic renewal on a powerful way. That's great. Um, so you've definitely touched on this, but one of the questions I see on the prayer current site is um, feeling the drag of stress relief survival prayer instead of a re of refreshing intimacy. So I'm thinking if that was a problem before this, certainly a problem we're seeing now. This, how do we avoid that stress induced survival prayer? Well, I think that. Um... The reason that we're seeing perhaps fewer answers to prayer, Jesus promised, I think, six times in Acts, in John 14 and 15, that whatever we asked, he would answer and he would do for us. But it's a certain kind of prayer. You know, and he says, but, you know, James says, if you pray for yourself and selfishness, you don't, you will call, but you will not be answered. So when a great deal of our prayer even begins before we worship or before we intercede for others, it begins with us. There's something suspect in that right away. 
Now, there are times when we cry out to God and, you know, the ship is sinking and we need to cry out and say, Lord, I'm sinking. Help me. And I pray those prayers too. three o'clock in the morning. It's my favorite prayer. You know, my ship is sinking. Help me. And so there's nothing wrong with that prayer in its proper place and time. But uh, I work with we have worked in the past and great fans of a ministry to uh, severely handicapped people called Joy Fellowship. And they said, our principle is joy. As we pray, it's Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And that we need to get back to the joy principle that prayer begins with contemplative, full-throated worship of Jesus. And then it moves to having his heart. He came to seek and save the lost. He, he looked at the crowds. He had compassion on them. He, you can't help but pray for people uh, in, in disarray and harassed and shepherdless. So many are shepherdless. Then we move to intercession. And then that leads to, uh, I think, a more hearty, repentant prayer for ourselves. Or, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and confess their wickedness then, and turn from their sin, I will hear what they pray and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. When we recapture repentance for our sin and intercession for a lost world, we're praying the kind of prayer that God promises to hear. And what kind of answers are we looking for? I think we have a profound fixation on healing. It's not healthy. It's the wrong kind of healing, physical healing, in other words, and a profound fixation on God taking care of my basic problems. Do you know in Paul's 64 prayers, how many prayers there are where he asks for healing or where he asks for people to get out of prison or himself. I'm sorry, there's not one. Every one of those prayers is spiritual in character because what the greatest prayers are, read Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, that you and I would get closer to Christ, that we would see him as he is seated at the right hand of God and that we would be more aware of his love for us I would say, on the other hand, when I'm praying for an unbeliever, for example, I was with Mohammed in Uber just a few weeks ago. Mohammed picked us up in his Uber and I said, how's things going? He says, well, I've got two jobs. I'm looking for a third. And then I said, Mohammed, so what do you pray for? You're a Muslim, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am. And I says, what, what do you pray and why do you pray? And he says, well, I say my prayers every day because it gives me a sense of peace. It gives me a sense that, that um, things are right in the world, something to that effect. And I said, well, I do too. That's really interesting. But you know what? Before that, I've got all kinds of debris in my life. I've got a lot of guilt, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, heaviness of what I've done wrong or, or my insecurity or bad conscience. And so first I go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. I want to be emptied of all that so that I can really start fresh and get back into things. So that's what it means to be a Christian is you go to the cross first to be emptied of your sins, confess them and have nothing to do with them. And then you can move forward to peace and you can move forward to hope. Then he dropped us off at this church and I'm sitting there thinking, here's a Muslim guy dropping three pastors off at a church. What does a guy do? So I said, Muhammad, can I pray for you? And he said, yeah, you can pray for me. Great. Thank you. He was very actually effuse in his desire that I do so. And I said, I pray, Father, you'd bless Muhammad. I pray that you'd bless him and his family and he'd get, become, enjoy some of the prosperity of this country. I pray that you'd take care of his children and they would learn and grow and thrive. 
I thank you, God, for Muhammad. I pray you bless him in every way in Jesus' name. Amen. And he had a happiness and a joy that a pastor, a, I don't know if he knew as a pastor, but a believer of Christ prayed to bless him. So that's the, to me, that's real prayer. I've, that made my day. I went and did a day of teaching after that. None of it even nearly approached the joy I felt praying that prayer for Muhammad that morning in that taxi. And I think that's what we wanted to capture the heart of Christ, to, to capture the, the love of the lost and intercession for those in need. You know, what we call default prayer is prayer turned in on yourself. My problems, my kingdom, my will, my ambitions. And that's a very enclosed circle. Someone once said, sin is nothing but self turned in on self. A carpenter shaves a piece of wood and it curls up like that. And that's what sin is, is us getting curled up into ourselves. So prayer can actually be self turned in on self. I mean, we're, we're, we're actually asking God, soliciting him to take care of me, as if that's what God exists in heaven for. And that's why we're here on earth. And, but kingdom prayer is just the opposite. Well, one is kind of um, centripetal, turned in itself. The kingdom prayer is centrifugal. It pushes us out. It goes from my will to God's will being done. My kingdom to his kingdom happening. It goes from uh, forgive. It, it goes from help me deal with my problems to Lord, help reconcile people, reconcile me in these relationships, reconcile us with others, forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Deliver us, give us daily bread. Lord, take away COVID-19 speedily, we pray, is, is one of the prayers that is under give us daily bread. It's a very practical thing. We do get to pray for very practical things. And that's why Christ gave us to it. But that's the fourth petition, not the first. Do you have any stories of like pandemic-related um prayer stuff that you've been involved with? I know you're speaking a lot. You're doing a lot of podcasts. Well, I did podcast for four for missions in North America. And last one was, you know, what are the apocalyptic ramifications of COVID-19? And the final answer question that was asked me is, well, what, what do you think is happening? What's going on? You know, <laughs> they wanted to know my 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 eschatology or sort of my practical, and I just said, "Well, here's here's what I believe is first of all, uh, I believe that we can know what Jesus is doing today. And this is always true, but especially in these times of heightened awareness, Paul exhorts us: we're supposed to be aware of what Jesus is doing. Do this. Understand the times. The hour has already come for you to wake up. The night is over. The day is almost here. So." Let me just give a little illustration. I'll give two. First of all, this is my answer, is I believe this is a day of an early tremor. A lot of earthquakes start with tremors. You know, there's little shocks of 2 and 3.0 and something, and then all of a sudden comes the beast, the 5 or the 6.0. And I think this is an early tremor, or it may be a precursor. But imagine uh, a, child this, a child's living on a farm by the train tracks. His father went off to war and said he promised he would return. But the war is drawing to an end. Everybody knows it. Soon, the father's coming home. And then uh, this child, every time he hears a train, he runs outside and said, maybe my daddy's on that train. And he waits and he waits and he waits. And then when he finds out his daddy's not on that train, he goes back home. He does his chores. He loves his siblings and listens to his wife, his, his, his mother, submits to his mother. Um, but he's disappointed. It's 
you know, he was looking forward to seeing his daddy. He goes back to these chores, but then when the, until the next train comes, and then he runs back out again. And that's kind of what the believer is like. Or imagine a terrible storm is forecast to arrive in a few days. You lift your eyes to look at the horizon. At first, a dark and threatening cloud forms in the far distance. As it steadily approaches, the lightning gets brighter and the thunder gets louder. You measure the distance by counting the seconds. It's getting closer. The seconds are quicker. Now, you might be off on your estimate, but when that storm is, is coming, it's been forecast. Its fury is beyond doubt. And it says in Zephaniah that the great day of the Lord is near and approaching quickly. So here's, here's a, a summary thought of what is happening now is actually can be phrased in another way. What is an awakening? What is a revival? What is going to change the world? The awakening we seek and pray for is nothing but the church waking up to a heightened and renewed awareness of the present exalted glory of Jesus Christ and an eager expectation of the rapidly approaching day of the Lord and then announcing this to the world. Now, I just say this. If the light of his approaching day is too bright for our eyes or the thunder too loud, it's because we've fallen into a deep and dark sleep. Lord, wake your church up to what you're doing. This is always the message, and we must hear that clearly today. He is approaching. Right now, I'm texting people, how, how are you holding up? That's my text. And then the second thing, I'm, I'm asking my non-Christian friends, like, hey, how can I pray for you? Is there a gospel presentation or any, any tips on that, on like evangelism through prayer and in texting, in, in this age of texting and video chatting people? Well, we were in Vancouver recently for a five-day World Street experience, and we had 45 leaders from around North America and some leaders from India and Russia, and uh, talking about um, prayer evangelism, we went on long prayer walks through the city, interceding for the city, and then interceding for their city that they came from, and then we took everybody out for prayer evangelism and took them out to engage in conversation with people on the street, cold-calling conversations. We had, in two hours, we had uh, 45 to 50 conversations with people that were sincere and deep. 30 people received a track that I gave them, we gave them, and allowed us to pray for them in two hours. So we think the world is not receptive and it's too secular and too atheist. I beg to differ. I, they said, they can't be reached this way. And I said, well, tell me all the times you've tried and failed. I might believe you because I haven't personally been found and I know I can do it, but I, the, every, the beautiful thing is the other people went out with, he said, this is so exciting. I can do it. So here's what I would say, Tim, is the question is what to do is when you pray for someone, you've listened carefully to them. What you ask them, what can I pray for you? And you bring the gospel into that prayer because people are much more willing to let you pray for them than, than you tell them the message of the cross. And so we ask them questions like, do you have any spiritual practices? And what do you think of the difference between prayer and meditation is? So believe me, those, those are two very good questions today. And most people are very eager to answer them. And then, then you'd say, after they've finished talking saying, thanks, that was really enlightening. And uh, can I pray for you? So I'll give you an example. A young man 
uh, we was living in a little cul-de-sac uh, in a front of a, a, a storefront that was closed right on the main drag, Granville Street. But here's a conversation I had with this young man. Let's call him his name, Corin. And, uh, uh, and he, he began to, uh, uh, he said, I said, can we talk? You're interested? And he says, hey, I've got nothing else to do, please. I could use some conversation. As we talked to him, we got to the point of talking about his spirituality and listening to him about his life of prayer. And then we started to talk to him about eternal life. And he said, he said if, you, if you don't have eternal life, then when you die, you're just going to die. And he turned to me and said, well, right now, that I feel that would be a good thing. I wish I could just die. So here's a guy sitting, willing to converse with Christian sitting in a little alcove waiting to die. Where are the Christians? Where are we? Are we like the Pharisee, the Levite, and the priest that walk by the other side of the road when there's people like him in every enclave in the city? When we're busy doing what? Jesus was out there. God's people are supposed to be on the street not blogging missional conversations, not saying how should we reach unbelievers. And then we got to pray for Corin. We also, by the way, there was a guy who was, works in public housing uh, that was with us that went to see him afterwards to see if we could get him in a house. We didn't just leave him sitting there in the alcove. So we prayed for Corin. We had this amazing conversation. So, so the question you're asking is, you know, let's get down to basics. What would Jesus do? I'm sorry. I think it's still a very good question to ask. He would not leave that man sitting in that alcove without hope. He would offer him hope. That's that's what we're to do. And how many seniors are we phoning that are shut-ins all the time? How many how many chronically ill people are we phoning? What are we doing about the destitute and the forsaken now? This is a great opportunity. I say. You should have 12 people in your life that are in utter need and nobody wants anything to do with. And you should be shepherding those 12 people. And you should not tell anybody about who they are. You just do it. That's what it means to follow Jesus. What If we haven't been doing that, we've been pretending. Erudite sermons isn't following Jesus. I'm not against erudite sermons, but... We have to get past the articulation of what, what, what does this passage mean to doing this passage? What's your next step in obeying Jesus in these matters? John, thanks so much for challenging us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go text some people right now. So I appreciate that, uh, uh, that from you. Thanks for, for um, spending time with us. Um, how can we pray for you? Well, I want to say thanks as well. It's an honor and a privilege. And I am enriched and deepened by city to city in so many ways and have friends there and have been blessed. And I just like to consider that I'm part of the same team. How you can pray for us is um, like many people, um, the newness, the rapid change can be very disorienting and overwhelming. The, uh, you know, so that we wouldn't get overwhelmed, we would pace ourselves. And particularly we want to, um, insert what we do into the artery of Christ's church. Okay, we want it to be to be valuable. We don't want glory. We don't want prominence. 
We're happy to be in the background. We want to serve, be leavened. And, and the other thing is for God to greatly multiply what we're doing. What we say is, Lord, greatly multiply what we're doing in order to magnify your honor and your name. I actually pray those kind of prayers. I, I pray that we multiply this ministry by a thousandfold. Why? Because it's not ours. And, and we all need more prayer. And we're one of the contributors to that larger picture. And we want to do the best job we can and be a part of it. That's it for this episode of Church and Outbreak. Our thanks to John Smed. For more episodes like this one and other tools for this time, go to RedeemerCityToCity.com slash resources.